Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today we're reading back some of the messages that you've sent in over the past couple of weeks. So I thought I would kick things off here with a couple of responses to our episode on the Ig Nobel Prizes for 2021. So this first message comes from Karen. Karen says, hi, Joe and Robert. In response to your Ig Nobel Prize grab bag episode where you discussed collision avoidance in crowds, I live in Australia, and the last time I visited the U.S., I noticed I kept walking in the way of others, even when it wasn't crowded. At one point, it occurred to me that I would keep to the left-hand side of any path or head-to-head, presumably because in Australia we drive on the left. Once I made a point of correcting and keeping to the right, I was suddenly less in the way. Interesting. Um... Uh, I wonder if this means that collision avoidance works differently in like international airports where there is more of a mingling of people uh, from from different countries of origin with different uh, side of the road preferences. Oh, yeah, that would be a whole experiment there where any kind of like pre-programming for this side or that side um, is just a. totally out the window like a new system maybe it, it works better because a new system has to emerge um you know uh, on its own uh, and you can't just depend on the dominant culture to be the the guy that everyone falls in line with right uh so karen goes on on an opposing note sometimes i play a walking game called don't get out of men's way and watch them freak <laughs> out Just by walking along in a straight line and not being the one to automatically change course when a man is approaching from the other direction, a woman can really blow their minds. Winking face emoji. Thanks for the great show. It's one of the key reasons that I listen to a podcast about is my main catchphrase. Cheers, Karen. Uh, Well, thanks, Karen. And actually, regarding not getting out of men's way on the sidewalk as a a game women play, uh, Karen was not the only person who wrote in. A listener named Ginger shared an article on this very subject, which the article calls Patriarchy Chicken, uh, which I found very funny. Though I I started to think about this, actually, and I was wondering how, uh, assuming this is true, how this interacts with the general finding uh, from these studies, like that study out of Japan, that Collision avoidance is a collaborative emergent product that requires constant monitoring and coordination from both sides. Uh, remember the studies about how uh, how jammed up a crosswalk would get if only a few people were distracted. So if it's true that there are also gendered norms about collision avoidance, how do they fit into the equation? Like, would it be that more often women are expected to make the first move in diverting pathways – uh, so, so this is another thing actually that made me laugh at first, then made me think. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, w- without a doubt, you do have some some gender dynamics, uh, uh, you know, cultural dynamics playing in there. But uh, you know, we, we're talking about we're mostly talking about grownups here, though. We're talking about uh, grownups walking down the street and crashing or not crashing into each other. Usually, not crashing into each other, but. You know, you throw kids into this scenario and things, I, I wonder where the research would go. Because uh, I was thinking about this this morning because uh, every morning I walk my, my son into his elementary school or, you know, close to it. And uh, a lot of parents are doing the same thing and there are other kids coming on and coming in on, on their own. And uh, it, it gets 
crazy. It's like, you know, kids today it was rainy, so kids with umbrellas swinging around giant umbrellas, almost mm-hmm. hitting babies in the face and their parents <laughs> trying to dodge and parents who have dropped their child off trying to then go back up the same street they came down. Um, this time, you know, with a, with greater ability to dodge incoming children and adults, but uh, it's a, you certainly can't have your phone out during all that. You'll just plow right into multiple children. Yeah, I, I think kids totally change things. And actually, I can observe that instinctually in myself because I don't know if you've had this experience. Um, I think I tend to find that when I'm in a space where there are uh, little kids moving around, my movements become much more uh, conservative or curtailed. Like uh, if I'm trying to go down a grocery aisle and there are kids in the grocery aisle, mm-hmm. I will I will move much more slowly. I think just on the understanding that kids might suddenly get in my path unexpectedly. There, it's far harder to judge exactly where they're going to go, uh, and I, I think maybe that that increases the the, the shorter they get. And the younger they get, yeah. you're like, I'm not sure which way she's going. I think I can predict her path, but I might not be able to. So I'm going to slow down. I'm going to go into the defensive mode. Um, but then on top of that, I feel like kids my my son's age, they're at that point where they're they're really good at dodging in and out of um, of, of uh, pedestrian traffic. You know, they're they're really mm-hmm. good about about uh, about weaving their way through a crowd, uh, and uh, at the same time it's easy to assume that they are about to just plow directly, you know, into you. Um, uh, there are many times just in the house where I'm trying to move from, from point A to point B and the boy comes running through and I'm just convinced we're about to collide. Uh, you know, I go into like full defensive mode, like, you know, cover, uh, you know, any sensitive parts so I don't get, get injured. And he's like, what? I wasn't going to run into you. And then he moves on. So yeah, kids well, complicate it- everything. It almost makes me wonder if there are like uh, kid collision avoidance norms and adult collision avoidance norms and that they can sort of have trouble interacting the same way that left lane and right lane traffic would. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Rob, you want to read this one about the Ig Nobels from Chad concerning cats and beards? Yeah, yeah. This had to do with the study um, about the uh, the hypothesis that uh, beards may have evolved. Uh, the male beard may have evolved as a way of, of softening the blow of incoming punches. But also about cat chittering. Oh, yeah. We got a little cat chittering, a little cat talk in here as well. Yeah. Uh, so this comes yeah to us from Chad. Chad writes, one of my cats frequently chittered at prey animals when she was younger. This seems like an odd instinct to me, as it seems like it could give a predator's position away. What I also thought interesting is that she would just barely raise her head above the windowsill in order to see the birds or squirrels, keeping her ears flat as if to minimize her visible profile. But at the same time, she would noisily chitter. Uh, This is interesting, and... um, you know, thinking back to what I was reading uh, in the uh, for, for the Ig Nobel episode, uh, it it I, I, my interpretation and I, and who knows cats are mysteries this could be wrong but my interpretation based on some of the the theories out there is that it's kind of like the cat is still preparing to jump but knows it cannot jump or cannot reach cannot actually attack the prey and that is where the chitter kicks in you know it's like that that uncontrollable like just uh, outburst. Uh, the the need to bite the neck, but the inability to reach the neck. So in this case, if this is correct, the chittering would not be a an, a naturally evolved hunting uh, behavior, 
but it would be a reaction to the fact that the hunting behavior is being thwarted. It's some kind of uh, displacement behavior. Yeah, I guess, and it's again, it's it's really hard to apply in the cat realm to the the animal re- to the human realm. But it, I like to imagine if I had like my favorite sandwich, favorite sandwich in the world in my hand, and then you know I, I'm I'm bringing it up to my face, and I can only bring it within like half a foot. Mm-hmm. Like, what kind of frustration? What kind of sound would I make? You know, would I would just go like ah? You know, uh, in, in, <laughs> uh-huh. in in sort of a, a frustrated attempt. Uh, you know, not even an attempt, but just an outburst at not being able to reach the sandwich. A chittering of anguish. Yeah, but it's you know even more than that because for us, like sandwiches are great. Um, but are, are we like highly evolved sandwich eating machines? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But I mean, for like the cat, the consumption of the delicious songbird, like that is its that is its purpose. That is its its holy role in the ecosystem. Uh, you know, it feels it in its very genes, and now it can't get there because there's this this magic glass screen between it and prey. Hmm. But uh, Chad had more to say. Chad says. I have a beard and trained in martial arts for six years as a young adult. We, uh, we ask any martial artist and uh, martial pe- people who knew more about martial arts than us to chime in on this. Um, he continues, uh, perhaps beards offer some slight cushioning effect, but they offer a distinct disadvantage. A beard can be grabbed and pulled painfully. I would <laughs> mm-hmm. guess it to be a weak point, not armor. I agree that I imagine early humans would rely on tools, not fists, for violence. Furthermore, if evolution was going to protect the head, why not grow thicker bones, store more fat around the face, develop a layer of rigid armor, or add much thicker fur for more noticeable cushioning effect? I agree that saying evolution selected for a beard is armor from punches is a stretch. Thanks for another great episode. Now, uh, I will say that some of the suggestions that um, Chad gets into here, obviously we're talking about far more expensive adaptations, uh, evolutionarily speaking. Uh, so, you know, like, there is a reason we don't have, uh, um, you know, some sort of a, a rigid armor growing out of our body. Yeah, that's true. And, and another thing, of course, is that uh, evolutionary adaptations have to they usually have to have some kind of starting place, like a like mm-hmm. a uh, a morphological tool to start with. So. In the case of uh, hair on the face, you could say that, well, you know, maybe our uh, our bodies used to be more completely covered in hair all over. And instead, what you're talking about is uh, cases where on certain parts of the body, hair that used to be all over the place is retained where it was lost elsewhere. And so there's some pressure causing it to be retained in those places. And again, with the beard, we don't know exactly what that would be. So so anyway, I guess you could say that it's easier to get to a beard through a string of, of mutations than it would be to get to, I don't know, some kind of like big cage of bones around the jaw. <laughs> uh, uh, but yes, also, it might be much more expensive to make something like that in, in terms of energy uh, and so forth. But yeah, so uh, I agree, Chad. Um, I uh, I remain open-minded about uh, more more fist-punching centric views of human evolution, but mostly pretty doubtful. All right, this next message comes in response to our episodes on the history of chainsaws. This comes from Shayna. She says, "Hello, Robert and Joe." I wanted to share a funny moment that happened while, uh, when listening to your episode about chainsaws, and particularly y'all trying to remember the color of the chainsaw used by Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films. My husband works in the prop department of a major theme park Halloween event. His job title is 
Captain of Bodies and Gore. <laughs> Over the years, they have done numerous TCM-themed mazes. He intimately knows the color of the chainsaws used in the films, green, because the screen-accurate chainsaws no longer come in that colorway. The prop department needs to paint and gut the machinery out of each chainsaw before they are handed to the scare actors. But this is, this is truly some fabulous feedback. Uh, but, but Shana goes on. Along the same lines, the Halloween event he works is famous for the chainsaw drill team that walks around the streets interacting with guests. Those are real chainsaws they use, just with the teeth removed. Uh, even without the blades, the performers have to be careful because hair and clothing could still get pulled into the motor. Oh, wow, that, that's a scary image. I assume they take uh, all, all appropriate precautions. Uh, but then uh, finally, uh, Shana says she she enjoys these uh, you know gangs of chainsaw people running around uh, because they they add more immersion. Uh, she says uh, the chainsaws are gasoline powered and the aroma of fuel follows them wherever they go. Whether it is purposeful or incidental, the added olfactory layer uh, adds to the experience. Shana. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean that is true. The the smell of the of the roaring chainsaws at your local haunted attraction are very much part of it. What's that? It's got to be the, the benzene getting into the bulb. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's uh, another one that comes to us. This is, uh, this is in response to a vault episode. I think it was titled uh, Melt With Me. And this is one where we talked about the idea of people melting, uh, both in terms of the, you know, the question, can a person actually melt? And then, then getting a little into the, uh, you know, the deeper questions of why do we keep obsessing over melting? And, and what about people who want to melt? Is that, uh, is that reasonable? Oh, and one thing this uh, email picks up on is I think we mentioned the Wicked Witch of the West from uh, The Wizard oh, of Oz. Yes. One, of the the one of the most famous cinematic melting scenes. Right. Um, and, and, if you're in, and it's impossible to realize that she's melting, right? Uh, because she's saying it as well. Uh, so, uh, so this is what Kenneth had to say. Dear Robert and Joseph, I use your Sunday names because I have beef. The Wicked Witch of the West was a truly evil character. Falsehoods come easily to her lips, and even her final words were designed to sow deceit. She did not melt. I don't know what she was made of, but her solid parts could not exist as a liquid at standard atmospheric pressure, causing them to sublime like water ice on the surface of Mars. Her fluids also vanished into thin air, presumably through evaporation. Don't fall for her lies." Great episode, by the way. The Toxic Ooze guy in RoboCop was absolutely haunting. I am grossed out to this day. Kenneth, P.S., Sting for Shadam the Fourth. Oh, in the next Dune movie. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I could see it working. Um, I'm kind of hoping they go in different directions with the with, with the casting. Uh, I think there's there's some room to get some uh, some more um, actors of uh, Middle Eastern or North African uh, heritage in there, but. Um, could, but as far as like if, if if Sting was the pick, I mean, yeah, Sting could do it. Sting, Sting's a talented guy. Oh, I should also mention that in uh, Kenneth's original email, he referred to me as Douglas. I don't know why. <laughs> he said, uh, hello, Robert and Douglas. Uh, but then he immediately uh, sent another email to to apologize and correct. So uh, what what's with that interpolation? I don't know. <laughs> All right, this next message actually comes in. Rob, this is one you brought in from the uh, from the Discord, right? 
Uh, that's right. Uh, there is a Discord server for stuff to blow your mind. Uh, you have to have like an invite to get in. So it, just email us and we'll send you the invite. Um, that's the only way, easy way I know how to do it. So uh, yeah, the, this was, uh, this was uh, something that was sent in via uh, the Discord server. From someone who I, identifies themselves as uh, Nair Lathotep. Mm, okay. I think that's some kind of uh, malevolent Lovecraftian god, if I'm not wrong. Um, yes, I, I, the kind of like uh, also kind of rounds up the gods, kind of speaks on behalf of the gods, if I remember correctly. Mm, okay. Uh, well, this listener says, hi, Joe and Robert. I'm listening again to Airships Over Venus. I guess maybe we ran this as a vault. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they say, discussion of the second planet never fails to inspire my imagination. The idea of a planetary body so close to us and in so many ways similar gets my mind into problem-solving mode. Surely making use of it as a second home is just an engineering problem. Yes, a giant engineering problem. What are the few resources available to a civilization in its early stages? Mars, for all its hype, is just a dead rock, half the size of Earth with no active core and barely an atmosphere. It can't be an unsolvable problem to tow our sister Earth out to a more manageable orbit and vent off the excess gases, or perhaps capture them in solid form with engineered life. At least that's what I like to think in my daydreams. Our biggest challenge in space is time and distance. We actually just talked about this with with Daniel Weitzen. Mm Mm-hmm. Venus may be our only reachable goal any time soon. Maybe once we build that Dyson sphere, we'll have the energy necessary, LOL. Topics like this have seriously kept me sane through COVID. Thanks so much and keep up the good work. Ah, well, thank you. And uh, yeah, I, I do have to say, sometimes when when the, the, the life on Earth gets stressful, uh, it is relaxing to contemplate uh, other planets. I think that might have been part of the original uh, decision to to look to Venus. It was just like, oh, man, this everything feels a bit stressful. Uh, what's going on on Venus? Let's talk about Venus. Venusian politics are, are far less stressful. Oh, who was it, though, who uh, was making observations of Venus in, in the 19th century or you know, some, sometime in the past and uh, was uh, drawing some rather wild inferences about mm-hmm. Venusian politics uh, from, yeah, it, like, yeah. they thought that fires were being lit for a coronation ceremony based yeah. on some changes <laughs> in the, the light on the surface. It might have been in this episode that we've given into that, if not this, yeah. one of the other uh, Venusian episodes that we did. I, I'm slightly less than convinced on that one. <laughs> All right, here come the crabs. Uh, This one comes to us from James. Hi, guys. Love the show. I've been a listener for years, usually in the car, so I haven't gotten around to emailing you before. I just had to make time for this one, though. I absolutely love the episode on crabs, especially the discussion about them wearing algae and sea anemones as a sort of camouflage, armor, and ready food supply. How cool is that? I actually had a saltwater crab as a pet for a time, and I was practically on the edge of my seat waiting for you to mention the pom-pom crab. This species actually holds a pair of tiny sea anemones in its claws like pom-poms, and my understanding is that they use these for mopping up food as well as defending itself. Tool use in crabs? Thanks, James. I think you actually had an episode. You did an episode about this a long time ago, right? Yeah, yeah, pom pom crabs have come up on the the show before. Uh, yeah, they're they're pretty cool. There's there's one study in particular I remember. It was about like you know, what happens when one crab steals the pom pom of another crab, and then they have to like take their pom pom, split it in half, and then they have two pom poms. So it's uh, yeah, these are great creatures because they're they're wonderful to look at, and then the yeah the, the practice itself is 
is is fascinating and indeed uh, raises the specter of of tool use. Well, this also reminds me of how uh, impressed, at least I was in in that episode about the uh, the description of the process by which these crabs who wore algae on their on their carapace would would go through to uh, I guess it was a uh, sort of stalks of seaweed. The process they would go through to attach it, like they would clip it off, they would measure it to a certain length, and then they would nibble the uh, the snipped end of it to roughen it so that it would cling to the spines on their shell, mm-hmm. and uh, then they would position it back and try to attach it and go through this over and over. It's like a, a surprisingly complex process uh, and, and kind of crafty for a crab. You know, I also loved it that we got to hear from somebody who has, or had, rather, a pet crab this is the only listener we've heard from that ha- has or had a pet crab. Uh, I refuse to believe that there's nobody out there listening to us right now uh, uh, with, with, a, with a hermit crab in the same room with them. So uh, if you own a pet crab, uh, it, don't be shy. Send us an email. We want to hear what your, your pet crab eats. Give us all the details. Uh, statistically, hermit crab owners are antisocial and they do not write into podcasts. <laughs> Prove him wrong. Prove him wrong, Hermit Razors. Okay, well, this next email does at least concern Hermit Crabs. This comes from Simon. Good day, gentlemen. Feel free to share this at your whim, but in regards to the crabby content, I would thought I would share a quick but amusing anecdote. Recently, I spent five minutes explaining to my five-year-old daughter that it is hermit crabs, not helmet crabs, before realizing that her version is so much better. Thanks for the amazing and interesting content, Simon. Uh, I, I, I read this because I feel like I've heard that same thing before. I think when I was a kid, I knew somebody who called them helmet crabs. Hmm, Yeah. But it makes sense. It makes so much sense. You wonder. You wonder why it hasn't. Uh, why that name hasn't taken over? Yeah, I mean, especially for young uh, uh, fans of uh, of crabs. I mean, you 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 know what a helmet is. You might not really know what the what the the whole concept of the hermit yet. Uh, so uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a little more difficult to explain. I mean, hermit crabs are they're Anamura. They're false crabs. So actually, the helmet would be the more accurate part than the than the crab part. Yeah, and and certainly sometimes the behavior you see in hermit crabs, like you see them mobbing, uh, you know, a, a coconut. Uh, they don't. That doesn't look very much like hermit behavior to me. No, so, uh, it doesn't really hold true across the board. All right, we have one more here for you. This one's a Weird House Cinema uh, message. This one comes to us from Dan. Hi, Robert and Joe. I am not a doctor. But if I were, I would prescribe at least two viewings a week of Inframan to combat seasonal effective depression or depression in general. I saw Inframan when I was about 10 or 11 years old as an English language dub. I had my dad buy during a trip to the local Sam Goody store that began with listing all the monsters up front as a pre-credit sequence and erroneously called the Plant Monster, Octopus Monster, and Spider Monster Beetle Mutant. Uh, This was when the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers were popular, and I remember the description on the back of the VHS box was really trying to pitch it towards that audience, i.e. me. I also found Siskel and Ebert's review of Inframan, which they both enjoyed because it delivered thrills and actions without boring dialogue and seriousness. Ebert, who saw it at a kitty matinee, especially loved the name Princess Dragon Mom and said it was a weird, curiously demented, but totally wonderful mix of sci-fi, kung fu, and superhero movie with a future as a midnight cult classic. 
and uh, Dan includes a link to that uh, section of the Cisco Niebert show. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's Dan's message regarding um, Inframan. We also heard just you know quick snippets from people on like the, the Facebook group for Stuff to Blow Your Mind, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. People just chiming in and saying, oh yeah, I love that movie. That's a great movie. Watched it when I was younger, etc. It's holy. Inframan is 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 holy, and uh, and it deserves reverence. And I'm and I'm glad to see it getting plenty. Uh, I did check out the the Siskel and Ebert review, which was quite fun. It was some episode of their show from I guess the late seventies, and it was quite funny because it was one of the where like they had to segue to it. I think from talking about some X rated erotic thriller, <laughs> and <laughs> then they go straight into uh, to Inframan, which uh, is just wonderful. Yeah, and you can tell like Ebert's just gushing about it. They both clearly love it. Um, it, it, it again raises the question of why the 2.5 stars and then when the upgrade, why only to three, he, he talks about it like a four star classic. So <laughs> I, I, again, I'm going to say that is Canon. Oh yeah. Apparently. Yeah. I'm looking at the clip now. Apparently they talk about, uh, Emmanuel guilty pleasures, uh, Superfly, the fury and Inframan. So, Inframan. I mean, <laughs> really, I mean, out, out of those films, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to Inframan first. No, wait, I'm reading further. They also talk about the Greek tycoon and the last house on the left in this episode. <laughs> so yeah, Inframan, clear winner out of the bunch. It is known. All right, we're going to go ahead and close the mailbag for this week, but we'll, uh, I guess we're back next week. Yeah, probably. If not, some Monday in the future, we're back. Uh, that Mondays are when our listener mail episodes happen. That's our time to to read your various uh, feedback and questions and so forth. So, yeah, keep them coming. We have our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have a short-form artifact on Wednesdays. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious uh, discussion and just focus in on a weird film. And then on the weekend, we do a Vault episode, which is a rerun from the previous year. Sometimes folks ask, why not from years previous to that? Why has it got to just be from last year? Uh, first of all, it's easier to keep track of. And, uh, and, and second, uh, uh, more, more seriously, uh, you know, we're often dealing with scientific topics, uh, stuff that, that uh, is not necessarily going to be evergreen five, green, uh, five years later. Uh, so that's always in the back of our mind, and we don't always have time to, you know, to go back and really review those old episodes and see, like, okay, have there been, have there been subsequent developments? Uh, has this changed? Um, does this need to be updated? Uh, it's a lot easier just to go back to what was happening a year ago and push that back out again. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.